This episode of The Law with D.K. Williams is once again sponsored by John Jersman. Thank you, John. We appreciate it, and you are the man. John would like to thank all of his fellow citizens that work to promote and preserve life, liberty, and property. Thank you again, John, for all you do. If you'd like to help support future podcasts like John Jersman, please contact my colleague, Bethany, by email at bethany at speakeasyideas.com. Now hit the music. Welcome to The Law with D.K. Williams. Giving the courts credit when they get it right, calling them out when they get it wrong. Welcome back to The Law with D.K. Williams. That's me, D.K. Williams, and this is episode 79, Ramos versus Louisiana, a case from just this year. It was released by the U.S. Supreme Court on April 20th, 2020. Of course, living in Colorado, April 20th is usually a big celebration of marijuana because, you know, April 20 is for. 20, which is a weed reference. This year, however, due to the government-mandated destruction of the economy in response to COVID-19, this year there was no big party in Civic Center Park. Of course, this government-mandated suppression of the economy affects single parents living check-to-check more than it affects Bernie's reviled 1%, which is something these economically illiterate don't seem to quite be able to grasp. But that's another topic. Let's get back to the U.S. Supreme Court. On the surface, the case this week, Ramos versus Louisiana, is about unanimous juries in criminal cases, and if states can get a criminal conviction with non-unanimity from the jury. Federal juries have to have it in criminal cases. Two states do not require it, Louisiana being one of them, as you might guess from the name of this case, Oregon is the other. If the jury votes 10 to 2 to convict someone, that would count in Louisiana. That's what happened to Mr. Ramos, Evangelisto Ramos, the plaintiff in this case appealing his criminal conviction. And I think it's important to use first names. Far too often, I think lawyers can refer to a case for its legal proposition or holding only. And we forget that there's humanity behind these names. There are individuals behind these names, real people with real lives that have real legal consequences to what happens in these cases. I try to do that in these podcasts. Uh, For example, like we discussed who Homer Plessy was in episode seven and what he was trying to do, who was helping him in Plessy versus Ferguson. We discussed who Oliver Brown was in episode eight of the law in Brown versus Board of Education. I bet most people had no idea that the Brown in Brown versus Board of Education's first name was Oliver, right? And he was a parent of a child. We talk about that. And in this case, Evangelisto Ramos is a person who was put in jail in Louisiana as this U.S. Supreme Court case determines in an unconstitutional manner. He was wrongfully imprisoned. Let's not just gloss over that injustice. Think about it. Kind of let that sink in. Evangelista Ramos is going to get a new trial now after the Supreme Court case said that was necessary. Of course, that doesn't mean he won't be found not guilty or he might be found guilty by a unanimous jury this next time if he's retried. But the Louisiana government does not have the authority to put Evangelisto Ramos or anyone else in jail by a non-unanimous verdict. And that is why this case is important. I've done criminal defense work and people ask lawyers all the time. I've been asked uncountable times, how can you defend someone who you know did it? Because if we or someone doesn't defend everyone, including some pretty horrible 
people, then the state can use that authority over someone completely innocent maybe even you. In this case, if Ramos did it, whatever it was, because the case doesn't even mention, mention it, but he was convicted of some felony. The lawyers for Ramos are fighting against the government overreach so the government can't overreach on you or anyone else, including your loved ones. So that's why criminal defense lawyers are important and why they represent people they know did it. And remember, while we discuss jury verdicts in criminal cases, is applicable to the states via the incorporation doctrine. Of course, every time I mention the 14th Amendment, as it applies to states, I am morally obligated to state that there's a school of thought that the incorporation doctrine is not correct, but we've been over that in earlier podcasts and it applies. That is a state of the law. So when I say the incorporation doctrine makes the Bill of Rights, which is actually the Bill of Restrictions, as you all know, because it doesn't give you any rights or anyone else any rights, it restricts what the government can do to you. Your rights exist because you are born, not because the government in its benevolence grants them to you. So federal courts have to have a unanimous jury to convict you of a felony, and that applies to the states. We have to acknowledge the subtext of this case, even though it's about criminal verdicts. The subtext in this case is so loud it almost drowns out the issues facing Evangelista Ramos. That subtext is overturning precedent and when it should be done and when it shouldn't be done. And the precedent at issue, while not actually being mentioned once, is Roe versus Wade. And we did, we went over Roe versus Wade in episode 11, so go check that out. And as always, The Law with D.K. Williams is brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas, and you can subscribe to The Law and other Speakeasy Ideas podcasts through your favorite podcast app, and just go right to speakeasyideas.com slash the law for these. Follow this podcast on social media. It's Twitter at the law DKW and on facebook.com slash the law with DK Williams. And if you've got any meetings going on or groups that um, you want me to come talk to, I'd be glad to do that. Love to be involved in your cool projects. Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details on that. Likewise, contact Bethany if you'd like to contribute to our work here at the law via a sponsorship like John Jersman who we love. So in this case, it was a six to three decision. And usually it's pretty easy to count up who's on which side of a case. A certain number of justices are in the majority and perhaps some in the dissent. Here, however, there's several subdivisions of the opinion with different justices agreeing with different parts. But the overall tally is the six to three decision in favor of Ramos and the need for unanimous jury verdicts in criminal cases in state courts. Go check out the link in the notes to the Oyez entry on this case for a more specific breakdown of the different subparts of the opinion. Now, as you guys know, I always encourage you to read them if you're interested. Don't listen to somebody else's opinion, or at least remember, if you're forming your opinion based on somebody else's opinion, that person may not have read it either. And the only way to really have a completely informed opinion of any type of document, Supreme Court case, or anything else is to have actually read it. And I always link to the actual case to make that easier if that's what you want to do. So in this case, Neil Gorsuch wrote the majority opinion. He was joined by Clarence Thomas, who agreed in the results, but not the reasoning. We'll mention that. Ruth Bader Ginsburg also joined Neil Gorsuch in the majority. Stephen Breyer, another quote-unquote progressive justice, along with Sonia Sotomayor, and then a Trump nominee, Brett Kavanaugh. Those are your six. So that's three Republican appointees in the majority and three Democratic appointees in the majority. Now, there was a written by Samuel Alito. He was joined by Chief Justice John Roberts and also Elena Kagan, 
and all but one section of the dissent, Kagan was down with all of it except the last part, and we'll mention that. So the dissent was two Republican appointees and one Democratic appointee. So if you add up the pages in the majority opinion, the concurrences, and the dissent, this opinion is 87 pages long. And I read it for you. That's why I'm here. And that's why sponsorships, like from John Churchman, are so appreciated. But as always, read it for yourself, and the link is in the notes. So what happened here? Evangelista Ramos was convicted of a felony by a 10-2 jury verdict. Now, since Ramos had been convicted, Louisiana had changed this non-unanimity requirement in their constitution. So henceforth, they're going to require unanimous jury verdicts for criminal cases. You'd think, well, then why are we hearing this case? Well, it wasn't retroactive and it didn't help Evangelista Ramos. They changed it after his conviction. So his conviction stood. He's still in jail despite being convicted by a 10 to 2 jury verdict. Let's jump right in at this point to the meat of the opinion. Let's see what this is about. Gorsuch explains the case. Accused of a serious crime, and like I said, Gorsuch and, and nowhere else in the case doesn't mention what that crime was, but accused of a serious crime, Evangelista Ramos insisted on his innocence and invoked his right to a jury trial. Eventually, 10 jurors found the evidence against him persuasive. But a pair of jurors believed that the state of Louisiana had failed to prove Mr. Ramos' guilt beyond reasonable doubt. They voted to acquit. Gorsuch goes on. In 48 states and federal court, a single juror's vote to acquit is enough to prevent a conviction. And that is why, this is me, the concept of jury nullification is important and it works. One vote can prevent an unjust conviction. Back to Gorsuch. But not in Louisiana. A single juror's vote to acquit is not enough to prevent the conviction. Along with Oregon, and you'd think those are two unlikely states to be paired with in this case, but it's Oregon and Louisiana. Those two states have long punished people based on 10 to 2 verdicts like the one here. So instead of the mistrial, Gorsuch continues, he would have received almost anywhere else. Mr. Ramos was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Why do Louisiana and Oregon allow non-unanimous convictions? Gorsuch asks. Though it's hard to say why these laws persist, their origins are clear. And then he goes into this uh, several pages about the racist history of these non-unanimous verdicts that had been allowed by more states, but now it's just the two. For example, he's discussing this racist origin of these laws. He writes, Louisiana first endorsed non-unanimous verdicts for serious crimes at a constitutional convention in 1898. Now, just for context, remember the Civil War ended in 1865, 33 years before this Louisiana Constitutional Convention. At this convention in 1898, according to one committee chairman, and this is in the case, the avowed purpose of that convention was to, quote, establish the supremacy of the white race. With a careful eye on racial demographics, this is Gorsuch, the convention in Louisiana, the convention delegates sculpted a facially race-neutral rule permitting 10 to 2 verdicts in order to ensure that African-American juror or service would be meaningless. How would that work? Well, the idea is that if one or two African-Americans made it on a jury and they wanted to acquit, they couldn't stop the remaining 10 or 11 white jurors from convicting. Gorsuch goes on. In fact, no one before us contests any of this. Courts in both Louisiana and Oregon have frankly acknowledged that race was a motivating factor in the adoption of their state's respective non-unanimity rules. We, the U.S. Supreme Court, took this case to decide whether the Sixth Amendment right to a jury trial, as incorporated against the states by the way of the 14th Amendment, if that right to a jury trial requires a unanimous verdict 
to convict a defendant of a serious offense. Gorsuch goes on, and this part is important. He lays it out beautifully. He says, Louisiana insists that this court has never definitively passed on the question and urges us to find its practice consistent with the Sixth Amendment. By contrast, Gorsuch writes, the dissent, the three-person dissent, Alito Roberts, and Kagan doesn't try to defend Louisiana's law on 6th or 14th Amendment grounds. Tacitly, it seems to admit that the Constitution forbids states from using non-unanimous juries. Yet, unprompted by Louisiana, the dissent suggests our precedent requires us to rule for the state anyway. What explains this? Gorsuch in the majority ask. The answer to that question, as he explains, is precedent or to use the fancy Latin that lawyers are taught, stare decisis, which means a thing has been decided. And the question of when the Supreme Court should uphold a wrong decision merely because they already dealt with it and made a decision back then, even if they got it wrong the first time. I ask, why is this complicated? Justice Thomas knows it isn't complicated, and he mentions it clearly in his concurrence. But he's in the minority about the way he reasons this. And as I mentioned before, from my viewpoint, if physicists prove a theory wrong that physicists have been assuming was correct, physicists don't keep doing it wrong just because earlier they thought it was one way when they discovered that way is wrong. But the Supreme Court does. The Supreme Court, because of precedent, will continue to apply something that is wrong. They don't always, like in this case, they overturn precedent, but they will. And Thomas says, why are we doing that? And this case isn't really close when it comes to the question about unanimity. They all agree that states have to get a unanimous jury verdict in a serious criminal case to convict. But the reason they have made a big issue out of stare decisis recently, and we've mentioned this in a handful of other cases in the past couple of years, is Roe versus Wade. And all the reasons the majority lays out for overturning this obvious case could perhaps be used, the same rationale could perhaps be used in Roe. And that subtext in this case is massive. Because when you lay out all the reasons for the Supreme Court for overturning their precedent in this case, if any of that applies to some future challenge to Roe, they'll cite this case. And that's why even the more progressive judges who would undoubtedly support Roe are very careful in their wording. But let's get into the nominal meat of this case, criminal jury verdicts. Gorsuch writes, the Sixth Amendment promises that in all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. That's the Sixth Amendment part of it. The amendment goes on, Gorsuch writes, to preserve other rights for criminal defendants, but says nothing else about what a trial by an impartial jury entails. So what does that mean? The court then goes back into history And again, there really isn't any disagreement on this conclusion. Gorsuch writes, One of these requirements for a trial by an impartial jury was unanimity. Wherever, he goes on, wherever we might look to determine what the term trial by an impartial jury meant at the time of the Sixth Amendment's adoption, whether it's the common law, state practices in the founding era, or opinions and treatises written soon afterward. The answer is unmistakable. A jury must reach a unanimous verdict in order to convict. There you have it. That pretty much takes care of that important historical point and what the Sixth Amendment means as it applies to a unanimous verdict in a criminal case. Ramos should get a new trial. 
because he was convicted by a 10 to 2 verdict or jury. And he does. Gorsuch, for the majority, continues, It was against this backdrop that James Madison drafted and the states ratified the Sixth Amendment in 1791. That's when the Bill of Rights, Bill of Restrictions, was adopted. By that time, unanimous verdicts had been required for about 400 years. So lots more history is discussed here by majority than a conclusion to this portion of the case. This court has long explained, too, that incorporated provisions of the Bill of Rights bear the same content when asserted against states as they do when asserted against the federal government. So if the Sixth Amendment's right to a jury trial requires a unanimous verdict to support a conviction in federal court, it requires no less in state court. And Clarence Thomas writes separately in this case to get to the same result, but he uses different rationale. He consistently says and argues, and correctly so, I believe, that the 14th Amendment's Privileges and Immunities Clause is a solid foundation for incorporation of the Bill of Rights restrictions to the states, not the Due Process Clause, which is what they use. And he's right. Process is a process. It is not substantive. But the Supreme Court created substantive due process because they screwed up privileges and immunities in an earlier case. Thomas says, let's fix that privileges and immunity screw up, call it what it is, and not pretend substantive. I said too many syllables there. Substantive due process is a thing. It's not, but they keep pretending it is. So it's the same result. Thomas just wants to get at it in a more clean rationale. So what is the bad case the Supreme Court had decided earlier? that now this Ramos matter calls for overturning. It was a 1972 case. The Supreme Court heard Apodaca versus Oregon. Four justices in that 72 case held like the court does here. Another four, back to Gorsuch writing in this case, another four took a very different view of the Sixth Amendment. These justices declared that the real question before them was whether unanimity serves an important function in contemporary society, then having reframed the question, the plurality, these four, wasted few words before concluding that unanimity's costs outweigh its benefits in the modern era. So the Sixth Amendment should not stand in the way of Louisiana or Oregon. That was in the 72 case. And I got to make a statement about this part. And I agree with Gorsuch here, but this is just me. So these four back in 72, talking, are talking about how the Constitution applies in a contemporary society during the modern era. Those are words they used. So they're saying that because times has changed, we're now contemporary, now we're modern, and society has evolved, apparently. Their argument is the Constitution did too, without changing a word of it. The words are exactly the same, but it means something different now. That's just wrong. It's abjectly wrong. It's dangerous. But, I mean, the court's been doing it for a, for a long time, but at least they don't do it here. And the court acknowledges that here. Even Kagan, who wants to uphold Apodaca, and she wants to uphold it because she wants to make it very, very difficult to overturn precedent because of Roe versus Wade. So, having said that, in the 72 case, Apodaca, we have four to four decision. But there's nine justices. What happened? How did they break the tie? And there's the problem. I'll let Gorsuch describe it. The ninth member of the court adopted a position that was neither here nor there. I had to laugh out loud at that. The ninth justice was Justice Lewis Powell. He had this third theory, which even he admitted no one else thought was a good idea. He said, this is a good idea. I believe it's a good idea. I know none of y'all do, and I know it's not what the court has ever said. 
But that's what I'm going with, Gorsuch says. Still, Justice Powell frankly explained he was unwilling to follow the court's precedents. So he offered up the essential fifth vote to uphold Mr. Apodaca's conviction in 72, if based only on a view of the 14th Amendment that he knew was and remains foreclosed by precedent. That he knew he was the only guy that held this opinion. So he didn't agree with either four on one side of the case or the other four on the other side of the case, but he came out with the same result, and that's where his vote went, even though his argument nobody else believed in. So we've got the 4-4 tie, tiebreaker agreed, Powell agreed with one half of that split for a different reason. So how strong is that precedent? So you've got two competing theories and a tie with the tiebreaker who didn't agree with either of the main theories. And that's the precedent in this case that Ramos versus Louisiana here overturns. So a 4-4 to 1 decision, then I find this line from Gorsuch in our present case, Ramos amusing. He said, we, the U.S. Supreme Court, we've been studiously ambiguous about what apodaca might mean. Yeah, that's what passes as funny by legal nerds when somebody says, we've been studiously ambiguous. That's high humor. Watch out, Chappelle. Then Gorsuch, for the majority, says something very important. As judges, it is not our role to reassess whether the right to a unanimous jury is important enough to retain, which is what four of the justices in Apodaca wanted to do. With humility, he explains, we must accept that this right may serve purposes evading our current notice. We are entrusted to preserve and protect that liberty, not balance it away, aided by no more than social statistics. I love that part. A paper by some social scientist doesn't change the meaning of the Constitution. It might support some policy change, but legislatures have to make that policy change. And if it affects the Constitution, then it's got to be a constitutional amendment. And you all know what I think about balancing tests. And I think Gorsuch here is making fun of that, or at least at some level criticizing it. Bravo to him for that. Then he moves on to the real issue, which is precedent stare decisis. Again, Latin for a thing that's already been decided. He says, The dissent doesn't dispute that the Sixth Amendment protects the right to a unanimous jury verdict or that the Fourteenth Amendment extends this right to state court trials. But it insists we must affirm Mr. Ramos's conviction anyway. Why? Gorsuch writes, Because the doctrine of stare decisis supposedly commands it. That's how he wrote it. Gorsuch writes, There's another obstacle the dissent must overcome. Even if we accepted the premise that Apodaca established a precedent, no one on the court today is prepared to say it was rightly decided. And stare decisis isn't supposed to be the art of methodically ignoring what everyone knows to be true. Boom. He goes on. Stare decisis has never been treated as an inexorable command. Inexorable, I looked it up, means impossible to stop or prevent. Even the majority, however, given all that, says precedent is important and that just because the current court thinks a prior case was wrong, wrongly decided, doesn't mean it should be overturned. So they're saying you shouldn't always abide by poorly decided precedent, but you shouldn't always overturn it either, he says. To balance these considerations, he writes, when it revisits a precedent, this court, the U.S. Supreme Court, has traditionally considered the quality of the decision's reasoning, the one they are considering throwing out, its consistency with related decisions, legal developments since the decision, and reliance on the decision. So then the majority goes on, analyzes each of those considerations, and says none of them are sufficient to hold on to the old, clearly wrong decision 
in Apodaca. Then we get to the money shot on this portion of the case. He writes, In the final accounting, the dissent's stare decisis arguments, like your chances of winning the Powerball, round to zero. Okay, he didn't say the Powerball thing, that was me. But the rest of it he said. He goes on, We have an admittedly mistaken decision, this Apodaca case, on a constitutional issue. An outlier on the day it was decided, one that's become lonelier with time. In arguing otherwise, the dissent must elide, ignore, the reliance the American people place in their constitutionally protected liberties. Overplay the competing interests of two states out of 48, count some of those interests twice, and make no small amount of new precedent all its own. So that's Gorsuch in the majority dismissing the dissent's arguments. Then Gorsuch drives the final nail home on this part of it with this conclusion. On what ground would anyone have us leave Mr. Ramos in prison for the rest of his life? Not a single member of this court is prepared to say Louisiana secured his conviction constitutionally under the Sixth Amendment, because it wasn't unanimous. No one before us suggests that the error was harmless. Every judge, he says, must learn to live with the fact that he or she will make some mistakes. It comes with the territory. But it is something else entirely to perpetuate something we all know to be wrong only because we fear the consequences of being right. I love that. So Mr. Ramos gets a new trial. He may or not be convicted at that new trial, but the constitutional requirement for a unanimous jury verdict is upheld here. And if he's convicted in a retrial, it's going to have to be unanimous, which is the way it should be. Awesome. The Supreme Court got this one right. So let's just touch a little bit on some of the concurring and dissenting opinions. This is where the Roe versus Wade subtext becomes less subtle than an Oliver Stone movie. Justice Sonia Sotomayor wrote in a concurrence, remember she agreed with the obvious fact that Mr. Ramos deserved a unanimous jury if he was going to be convicted. I write separately, she says, to underscore three points. First, overruling precedent here is not only warranted, but compelled. She's saying we have to do it here because that Apodaca case was so wrong. And why did she point this out? Why did she use these words that overruling it wasn't only warranted, wasn't only allowed, but compelled it was necessary? Because when a challenge to Roe comes back up, she can say overruling precedent in that case is neither warranted nor compelled. Here it is, she says. Put simply, this, the Ramos case, is not a case where we cast aside precedent simply because the majority of this court now disagrees with it. Again, she's distinguishing her vote from any and all future Roe challenges. She's saying that those that want to overturn Roe are just going to want to do it because they disagree with it. She's saying that's not what we're doing here. We're doing it here because it is so egregiously wrong. We have to overturn it. She's putting that language out there that will protect her when she wants to uphold Roe. And nothing wrong with that. I mean, justices do this all the time for potential issues that might show up later. So I'm not saying anything wrong with it. I'm just pointing out that's what she's doing. And another example of it, she writes, Moreover, the force of stare decisis is at its nadir, its lowest point, in cases concerning criminal procedure rules that implicate fundamental constitutional protections. And again, why does she point this out? She's saying we have to do it here in Ramos because it is a criminal procedure matter. And putting people in jail is serious, especially for life. So Ramos is being put in jail for life unless we fix this. That's serious. 
Roe's not a criminal case. So if she says we had to do it here in this criminal case, they can't say, well, you, that's what you said in Ramos. She says, yeah, that was a criminal case. This isn't a criminal case. In a future Roe challenge, stare decisis will not be at its nadir as it is here in Ramos. She's laying that groundwork. Then one final example, she concludes with this. While overruling precedent must be rare, this court should not shy away from correcting its errors where the right to avoid imprisonment pursuant to unconstitutional procedures hangs in the balance. Again, that doesn't apply to Roe. She's saying the court should shy away from correcting itself when there's not somebody going to jail forever. I know, I know. A lot of you guys are saying, yeah, but you're killing a baby. Yeah, I, I know that's what you're saying. But that doesn't apply to her argument, her legal argument. There's a moral argument, I understand. And if you've listened to my coverage of Roe versus Wade, you know I think it was wrongly decided on a purely legal and constitutional basis. And I think even some honest progressives will admit that. Even if they agree with the outcome, they're like, yeah, that was really a reach. Kavanaugh, also concurring with the majority, or part of the majority, but writing separately, says... The doctrine of stare decisis does not dictate, and no one seriously maintains, that the court should never overrule erroneous precedent. But then on the other hand, he says, no one advocates that the court should always overrule erroneous precedent. Kavanaugh says, as Justice Scalia put it, the doctrine of stare decisis always requires reasons that go beyond mere demonstration that the overruled opinion was wrong, for otherwise the doctrine would be no doctrine at all. All right. Then Kavanaugh goes on for about 10 pages or something discussing when cases should be overturned or not. Then we get to Thomas concurring in the judgment because he agrees Ramos should get a new trial and all states should are constitutionally required to get a unanimous criminal verdict. He restates his correct argument, in my view, that incorporation of the Bill of Rights, Bill of Restrictions, is more accurately achieved via the Privilege and Immunities Clause of the 14th Amendment than by the Due Process Clause. I know, only law geeks really care about that. And he's like the only one of nine Supreme Court justices that really care about it. Thomas says in his concurrence, As I have previously explained, the court's typical formulation of the stare decisis standard does not comport with our judicial duty under Article 3 of the Constitution because it elevates demonstrably erroneous decisions, meaning decisions outside the realm of permissible interpretation, over the text of the Constitution and other duly enacted federal law. He's correct. So he does leave room for the doctrine of stare decisis. Because he might disagree with something, but if it's inside the realm of a permissible interpretation, he would not overturn it. But he's saying here, this is outside the realm of permissible interpretation, and so it should be tossed out. Then we get to the dissent, a few notes from this. Remember, this is Alito writing it, and he's joined by Chief Justice Roberts and Elena Kagan. It appears that Alito and Roberts are just big on law and order. Hey, this guy was convicted. Yeah, it was 10 to 2, but he was still convicted, so keep him in jail. Whereas Kagan is are emphasizing, sorry, decisis, because of Roe versus Wade. That's the subtext. Alina Roe. Today, the court does away with Apodaca, and in so doing, imposes a potentially crushing burden. I love it when they get all hyperbolic. Crushing burden on the courts and criminal justice systems of those states, Louisiana and Oregon. So what Alito was saying, and Roberts and Kagan have joined him, 
He's saying that the proper application of the Constitution is a potentially crushing burden on the courts. So what? It's their job to properly apply the Constitution. I mean, that statement is a frightening notion. And Kagan signed on to that part, which is scary. In the conclusion to the dissent, which written by Alito, joined by Roberts, but this part was not joined by Kagan. Alito wrote, By striking down a precedent upon which there has been massive and entirely reasonable reliance, which I think the majority debunked, but that's what Alito's saying, the majority sets an important precedent about stare decisis. I, Alito, assume that those in the majority will apply the same standard in future cases. So I submit that maybe Alito is saying when Roe comes up again, a challenge reaches the Supreme Court again, that U6 in the majority of this case should be just as willing to overturn Roe. So I think he's saying in any future challenge to Roe, the majority in this case, Ramos, shouldn't worry about this reliance interest that's going to be argued. Again, I'm not sure, but I do think it is interesting that Kagan did not join that part. She joined the rest of it, which was arguing for the general principle that precedent should be upheld, usually, but not this part about the majority isn't going to accept any reliance interest arguments in the future, in a row case perhaps, because Kagan doesn't want to make that assumption. She's not making that assumption. So this tension between getting cases right and upholding incorrect precedent in the interest of stability It's a lot of tension. It's tight. And even in a case like this, where the underlying constitutional issue isn't even an issue, they all agree the Sixth Amendment requires a unanimous verdict in a criminal case in a state court. Stare decisis is where the argument is. And Justice Kagan, a progressive hero, is on the side of keeping Ramos in jail. She doesn't want to give Evangelista Ramos another trial, even though he had been convicted contrary to a constitutional protection. He had been convicted by a 10 to 2 jury, not a unanimous jury. And Kagan is so intent on maintaining precedent, perhaps for Roe, she's willing to let Evangelista Ramos stay in jail for the rest of his life, despite his constitutional rights being violated. And she's willing to let future people like Evangelista Ramos go to jail, even if their constitutional right to a unanimous jury verdict in a criminal case is violated. Interesting stuff, I think. I mean, it intrigues me. And I'm D.K. Williams, and this has been The Law, Episode 79, Ramos versus Louisiana. We're brought to you in collaboration with Speakeasy Ideas. Let me know what you think. Go to Twitter at TheLawDKW, and the Facebook page for this podcast is at Facebook.com slash TheLawWithDKWilliams. Once again, we thank John Jersman for sponsoring this episode of The Law. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate the support. If you'd like to contribute to our work here, like John, Contact Bethany at speakeasyideas.com for details. And until next week, my friends, freedom is dangerous. Live dangerously.